Hi, I'm Brian McCreeth, and this is The Answered Question from WCRB in Boston for March 31st, 2017. This is a podcast about the creative process through music in the words of the musicians you hear on the air each week here at WCRB. You're hearing part of Thomas Addis's Court Studies from the Tempest in a performance by Addis and the Boston Symphony Chamber Players. It was on the air last Sunday on WCRB in concert, and now it's available on demand when you visit our website, classicalwcrb.org. Also on that program, among other pieces, was a gorgeously played wind quintet by Tafanel, some beautifully angular Shakespeare songs by Stravinsky, and Schubert's Trout Quintet. Also on demand now is last Saturday's Boston Symphony Orchestra broadcast, led by François-Xavier Roth. Actually, most of the concert is available. The cello concerto by Matthias Pincher, Un Despertar, is not available because of restrictions imposed by the publisher. But take a listen to the Corsair Overture by Berlioz and the Sixth Symphony by Beethoven, both really terrific performances. On the podcast this week, it's a triple bill. First, it's Alain Altinoglu, the guest conductor who's leading the BSO for the first time this weekend in a fabulous French program of music by Berlioz, Lalo, Dutilleux, and Roussel that you'll hear live on the air tomorrow night at 8 o'clock on WCRB. Then Julie Skolnick, the flutist and founder of Mistral, a chamber music ensemble celebrating its 20th anniversary. Kathy Fuller brings you Mistral on WCRB in concert on Sunday evening at 7 p.m. And finally, I have a deep dive into the Boston Symphony's 2017-2018 season, which was just announced with BSO Artistic Administrator Tony Fogg. The program Alain Altinoglu is conducting at Symphony Hall this week begins with the Roman Carnival Overture by Berlioz and continues with Lalo's Symphony Espagnole with violin soloist Renaud Capuçon. Then, beginning the second half, is Henri Dutilleux's Symphony No. 2, Le Double, and the program ends with the second suite from Albert Roussel's Bacchus et Ariane. And I talked with Alain Altinoglu right after his very first rehearsal with the orchestra. I'm Brian McCreeth at Symphony Hall with Alain Altinoglu, and he is here for his Boston Symphony debut. It's so good to have you here. I've heard so much about your conducting, and, and now here you are conducting the Boston Symphony. Thanks for taking a few minutes to, uh, to talk with me. Thank you very much. It's a great pleasure. You know that the Boston Symphony Orchestra might be the most famous uh, American orchestra in France for years, I think because of uh, these French conductors who used to be the music director here, like Charles Munch and uh, Monteux, who conducted a lot, and of course after the stories with Pierre Boulez and everything. And so it's a great pleasure to come for me because I, have a, I had a lot of recordings of this orchestra when I was young and also of French music. And uh, that's why I wanted when I came here to build a program around Charles Munch and the French repertoire. Oh, okay. So Charles Munch is really at the heart of this program and, and your own background listening to his recordings. Absolutely. Um, the Second Symphony by Dutier was premiered here in Boston in 59, conducted by Charles Munch. The Roussel first suite, Bacchus Arian, was premiered by Munch in Paris in the 30s. And of course, he was a champion of uh, Berlioz and Lalo. So for me, there was a, a great link between these pieces. What other um, conductors and orchestras did you grow up listening to and what were really important to you? I mean, um, in the fr French conductors were mainly Munch and uh, Pierre Boulez, I would say, and of course Monteux because there were there are, there are um, historical uh, recordings of uh, Sacre du Printemps, for example, and things like that. And uh, on this side of German side, I would say I listened a lot of very old conductors like uh, Furtwängler, for example, which I admire, but also the American um, in the opera world, because I love opera. James Levine, for example, for me, was also a great conductor to listen. But I listened to many, many conductors, Bernstein, of course, Ozawa, I mean, yeah, a lot of them, yeah. You've given us a nice uh, sort of capsule of the history mm -hmm. of the music and why, how it connects together. But tell me about, especially what you do to you, mm -hmm. first of all, I'm curious, did you ever have a chance to meet and work with him? Uh, Unfortunately not. I met his wife, but not Dutilleux, because maybe I started to conduct a bit late for that. But uh, uh, I have a lot of friends, of course, who worked with him, and he was a very, very gentle and refined and very uh, intelligent human being also. Um, he had an unbelievable, incredible ear. You know, sometimes with some composers, when you listen to them, their music, you, you can say, oh, he understands and he hears what he's composing, you know? Sometimes it's not always the case, but with Dutieu. And for me, he's a bit in the continuation of Maurice Ravel and Debussy, and especially with his orchestration. Um, and I think 
um, yeah, he, he, he gave a lot to the French music. And I think, unfortunately, during his life, it was not such a... Um, uh, we didn't give back to him, I think, what he deserved. And now, since he's, he died, I think, now people start to understand how important is his work. Say a little bit more about how his music really connects with that earlier set of French composers. Actually, in terms of orchestration, for example, how he uses the woodwinds and uh, the clarity of the strings and how he mixes the, the, the music in between. And, of course, in terms of structure, he's in the... Um, post-Debussy. Debussy started this, uh, I would call uh, impressionist music, I would say, but it's more than impressionist because impressionism seemed to be something which is not controlled and which is a little bit, you know, cloudy or something. Now, in, in these clouds, they are very structured and very, very difficult um, uh, things to understand. And uh, when he started to compose Dutilleux, if you look in the music, you find like five bars, seven bars, three bars, structures, things very, very unusual. And uh, in uh, Metabol, of course, after the Second Symphony and the Second Symphony, um, he used a system of developing little motifs, little themes, uh, like, I would, I would not say light motif like Wagner, but to take something uh, very small and to develop it, it comes back. And this was also used after him by Pierre Boulez, you know, uh, at the same time, I would say. So it's, there is a big link in between French composers. For that. And, and in the Symphony Number no. 2, there's a chamber orchestra and large orchestra. So tell me how those two sets of ensembles, uh, how those two sets of players interact. It's very interesting. Some musicologists, American musicologists, three years ago found the um, manuscript and the drafts of the second symphony. Ah, okay. And it's very interesting to see that he he searched a long time how to do this, you know, how to have... At the beginning, he wanted to call it Concerto Grosso, you know, like a baroque, side, baroque time, and finally he changed to second symphony. And it's interesting to find out that the true theme, theme of the of the symphony is not in the beginning or the end, it's, in the, it's hidden in the harpsichord part. And he wanted the harpsichord because it reminds a little bit of this uh, baroque time. And it's so interesting how to play between these two orchestras, the small and the, the petit and grand orchestra, the, the small and the big orchestra, how they interact together. It's like mirror, symmetric, sometimes opposition, sometimes the winds of the small orchestra plays with the winds of the big orchestra. and and. And, and it's a great pleasure to conduct this piece because it's, uh, you have to be very focused, of course, and um, a lot of things happen. But I have to say that there is a virtuosity in the piece, but also very deep in the second movement, and it's very spiritual. And the end of the second symphony, it's something amazing. The coda, which it's a slow movement at the very end of the symphony, it's like, uh, yeah, you, you can start to believe in God if you don't believe in God, you know, it's such a beautiful music, yeah. Have you worked before with Renaud Capuçon? Yeah, of course. Yeah. We are very, very old friends. We were at the same time at the Conservatoire de Paris when we were teenagers. So I think I know Renaud uh, yeah, maybe for 25 years. We are in our early 40s, and we know each other for 25 years, which is crazy. And yeah, he, I conduct him. Uh, yeah, we, we made some concerts together, and I'm always very happy to... to to play with Renault. Yeah. Well, you might be better uh, able than most to speak to this then. Um, what is it that makes his playing special? What does Renault Capuçon bring to any piece that he plays, and especially the Lalo piece that he's playing? Of course, uh, in Lalo and French music, I would say the, the French spirit and uh, how we feel the Spanish from France in the 19th century, which is very interesting that uh, Bizet, who composed Carmen, or Chabrier with Espana. Um, they were never been uh, in Espana before composing these pieces. So it's not really the Spanish music, but what French people think about Spain in the 19th century. And maybe he brings this mentality, you know, in the music. But uh, he's, he can play everything, Renaud, and he has such a beautiful tuning and beautiful sound with his violin. So, and also the way he makes the rubato. And yeah, so yeah, it's a great pleasure. Yeah. Uh, Roussel's music does not... It, th this orchestra, as you mentioned, has a, a great history with Roussel, but still it doesn't come up on programs quite as often as those other composers, Debussy and Ravel. What is it that separates Roussel's music <laughs> from those others? Oh, tricky question. <laughs> um, when he composed this ballet of Bacchus Ariane, it was a huge success because you find 
everything in this music that suits to the French palette, like uh, you know, slow movement, fast, and virtuosity, uh, sadness, uh, that you can find, for example, in Daphnis et Chloé uh, by Ravel. Uh, it's very interesting. Uh, when you listen, uh, last week I was conducting the, the complete Daphnis and Chloé, which is one hour long. And also in this music, we really know the second suite, for example, and the first suite. But in between them, there are some music which are music done only for the ballet, you know, which are not so, you know. And in Roussel, um, he, he didn't make a big effort. The first suite is the first act, and the second suite is the second act. But you can follow in his music what happens in the story, and that's very important. So it's very explicit in the storytelling just through the music alone. Absolutely, and it's written in the score, so you can really follow the story and what the dancers are supposed to do. And as we speak, uh, you've just completed your first rehearsal here yes, with absolutely. the ESO, and a lot of it was about Roussel. And, and what are you hearing from the orchestra? Ah, it's great. I mean, I know and I knew that orchestra is amazing and reacts so fast, and they are so professional and so reactive to what you say. And what is mo the most important for me in this French music are the colors. And because maybe of their history with this French, they can absolutely very fast change the color and yeah I felt very you feel this orchestra is like maybe a big family you know you have this feeling that they know each other very well and uh, so you now I have a good feeling. Alain Altinoglu thank you very much for your time today. Thank you very much. Alain Altinoglu leads the BSO in a concert will broadcast live on the radio and online beginning at 8 p.m. tomorrow night. On Sunday Kathy Fuller brings you WCRB in concert with Mistral. She talked with Julie Skolnick about the music and about the ensemble's 20 years of existence. Here's their conversation. I'm here with Julie Skolnick, the artistic director of Mistral, who just celebrated 20 years together last year. Uh, a very close-knit family of players. Thanks for being here, Julie. Oh, it's so nice to be back, Kathy. Tell me why you started a chamber music group 20 years ago. Oh, it's a, it's a great question and one that I enjoy answering. I think at first I had a, a different reason than what I came to understand as being a wonderful benefit. At first I started it to play the music I loved the most with the most, you know, talented communicative players um, that I that I knew in my in within my reach. And there are plenty, as you know, in the Boston area. I had been a freelancer for for a long time, and so I had a big pool of wonderful, incredible colleagues. Um, who enjoyed an intimate concert experience as I did. But what I learned after doing this for several years, that it not only gave me that experience to, to, to have creativity in programming and wonderful journeys of, of new friendships and music making, but it also afforded me an opportunity that playing in freelance orchestras did not, and that was a chance to connect with my community over a very a very intimate concert experience where um, I was in, involved in almost every aspect of it. And to me, it was really an extension of inviting somebody into my living room to share what was most important to me, not just in music, but all the themes of life. And for that reason, I've always made my concerts uh, thematic, um, not just throwing one Shostakovich, one Dvorak, and one Mozart into a pile, and that's the concert, but finding ways to connect pieces in a way that allows listeners to hear pieces anew, and the juxtapositions give them new understanding, new insights. Well, that, you know, that word intimate always, always comes up when we're talking about chamber music, and we know that it's intimate. You only have to watch yeah. to know that it's intimate for the players. I mean... I think marriages have been born inside of chamber music, right? Because it, it, it's, it's, it doesn't get much better than that, playing with somebody. But is it that way for the audience? Well, not always. Not always. I mean, I have been to um, chamber music concerts that don't feel intimate. And um, it's not just the intimacy of the number of players that are on the stage. It's the size of the venue, for one thing. You know, for I don't believe that you can hear chamber music in Symphony Hall, and um, and many other many other big venues do have chamber music concerts. I don't think we're accomplishing what what the music was meant to accomplish. I think you want to be several feet away from fervent musical conversation. You know, and watch the 
the bow hairs flying and um, and watch the expressions on the musicians' faces as they're having this conversation. And we have always had very, I mean, it's not that we wouldn't play to bigger audiences, but we've always been an intimate venue, um, whether it's been in Andover or Brookline. A chamber. A, a chamber. And people, and we love home concerts as well. And the one thing that people always comment um, on is that they love being so closely engaged, it, up close and personal. That's kind of a corny, cliche phrase. But it is... Um, what people comment most. Well, do you think they bring that experience if they then go to a, an orchestra concert? For Do you think something is, well, is translated there? I, I think it's just an entirely different experience. You know, there's nothing more powerful and moving than a, than a full symphony orchestra concert at Symphony Hall, but it's just not the same experience. I know that you love France. You yes. have a thing. Well, you know, I think once you spend a year there as a 20-year-old, it's something that never really goes away. And there's and that, a great line that you wrote that you, when you were in your 20s, you spent endless hours wandering the misty Ks, pining for a kindred soul. That pretty much sums up Paris. I, I think, think it sums up Paris and probably it sums up the experience of almost every 20 year old who's ever spent a year in Paris. But um, I think that, you know, the, the seed was planted then. And because my husband and I both um, spoke French, it, it gave us the idea of spending more time in France. And the name Mistral, though, Kathy, of course, you were right to say it's a famous poet, but the Mistral we were talking about was the wind. The wind, that's yeah. right. It, it, that's Which, what I should have said. The, people always ask me, is it the poet or the wind? And we used to like to say when we first came up with the name that a new wind was blowing through chamber music. <laughs> and then the fact that I'm a wind player and my husband is in wind energy and we're Francophiles, it all kind of tied in with the wind. But the, the main inspiration was from the movie uh, Chocolat, if you remember how the whole village always kept talking about the Mistral wind and how it got under your skin and your lives were never cha uh, forever changed and you never felt the same again. That was really what I had in mind when we came up with the well, name. That's, that's great. Well, speaking about, about France and, and your, your love of this music, uh, you have a way of taking pieces and 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 owning them as a flutist, and and I've always admired that. There is this Debussy trio, um, which was written when he was just a, eighteen, a young, mm -hmm. yeah. And uh, the interesting thing about this piece is that it was lost for over a hundred years, and only reconstructed from various portions of the cello and piano parts, and published only in the nineteen eighties. So it's relatively unknown to the world. I mean, people are playing it, but. Um, you know, it's not something you hear every day. People are always saying, I had no idea this piano trio existed. So it was fun when I discovered it and and decided to play it on flute. I'm not the first person to have thought of it, though. I did know that flutists have played it. Right, you're um, playing the violin part. I am playing the violin case. part, and I'm very used to doing that. I do have, I do suffer from what I like to call repertoire envy. <laughs> and I do steal a lot of violin repertoire for myself. I've gotten very... Is the range about the same? It is about the same, but it doesn't mean that there are not significant changes that need to be made because you can't just suddenly in the middle of a scale decide to take something up an octave. It's a question of planning ahead where where the, you know, the new register will begin so that it makes musical sense. So sometimes you just have to go up, even though the violin exactly. can stay where it is. Exactly. And that means that I have to look back a little farther and decide where to begin the upper register so that it makes a unified sense. I see. Yeah. I, I remember once having you in uh, to a show, and, and before you started to play, you were lapping your flute. I think I think people don't realize what's involved with playing the flute. I think you were trying to keep it warm or, or something oh, like that. But I don't know if I was lapping it. You were sort but of you lapping know it. <laughs> I remember. But, but let me ask you this. If you had to quickly tell somebody, some someone who never thought about the flute before, yes, yes. what to listen for, to know that this, mm. is, this is great flute playing, this is... Ooh. Ooh. Wonderful flute playing. What would you say? What a great question. Well, you know, flutists always feel very inferior to string players. Number one, the repertoire. We have very, very, very little juicy romantic repertoire. And we feel inferior in terms of sound production. A flute can be, people are always saying, oh, the flute will cut through, the flute will cut through. But actually, in the middle register of the flute, it will not compete with the middle register of any string Where instrument. Where is that, like on the piano, like around middle C? or Middle C and the whole octave above that or something. Yeah, like so that. that doesn't cut through. It doesn't really cut through. 
And, um, you know, I don't know. I, you know, I raised two kids who, who are both serious musicians now. And so I've had to put up with um, feeling very inferior to their piano and cello repertoire <laughs> all the time. And when we play together, they won't play. <laughs> They've not refused, but I don't ask them to play flute trios. We play Schubert trios. We play piano trios. I've played Dumke. I've played Beethoven trios with them. We've played Dvorak. I mean, we've done a lot of... Um, and you Real just violin, steal cello, the violin piano. Part. Yes, absolutely. Okay. One of the beautiful things that the flute can do, even though we feel that we can't produce the same amount of sound, the flute can produce gorgeous colors, tone colors, meaning that we can make the flute kind of sound like a, a cool open clarinet, or a um, how do I describe it to my students? I call it an ooey sound. It's this kind of hollow cool sound. We do it down mostly in the lower registers. It's just completely changed. You can do it in Debussy and, you know, Ravel. And, hollow. Um, it's, it's a kind of a hollow, beautiful sound. The French and the flute are yes. kind of, like, important to each other. Yes, they are. And I remember that when I was young and learning the flute, maybe in high school, um, my flute teacher at the time was always talking about the French embouchure uh, the, the, the mouth that we used to say U in, Fran- in French is really the same embouchure we use to make a, a good um, The embouchure sound. is sort embouchure. of the shape of the your U, mouth, Exactly, right? exactly. Yeah. And so, so, oh, it's a U. Oh, it's so an there U. you go. It's an U with the lips forward, you know. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's why they used to say that there were so many French flutes. That's a very silly thing to say. But <laughs> anyway. Um, you are our teacher mm-hmm. as well as a, as a uh, chamber musician. And... Um, I remember uh, one of my colleagues here, Chris Voss, who was oh, a singer. Yeah. He was saying that we were talking about the the metaphors you got to use when you teach, yes. and how strange it can get to get a student to to imagine something. Mm. He said one of his teachers once told him to imagine himself behind himself in order to open up his voice, and oh, and it worked. Somehow this teacher came up with that concept. Mm. But just as a, as an example of how weird it can get, do you have to find yourself groping for metaphors sometimes to get it's the thing to work? It's kind of the fun part of teaching, actually, to, to use that intellectual muscle to explain and to draw, draw sounds out of your students. Um, also, I like, you know, there's a way of using your body like a conductor to try to show sound or a phrase with your hands or with your body, you know. So, When you play Beausoir yes. with your daughter, yes, uh, that, that's got to be touching. Still give you goosebumps? I, yes. It will never get old. It's, you know, less so for them. I basically have to beg them to play with me now, but... <laughs> They're on but, to new things. They, but it is, it's really fun. You know, and, and since Sasha's a cellist, we do all three of us play together. Um, it is, it's really fun. And, and you know, I, I love playing with her, not because we're related, but, but because she really, really, un- we understand each other's music. I know that if you had to sing Beausoir, I, the quality of the vowels of, mm. of, of the French are very sort of pure. You can always hear somebody who's singing who doesn't really know the language because there's all these extra vowels that come in there. There's there's a certain... Is that true in, in, in playing it on the flute as well? Do you think about the lyrics or are you... Well, one should think about the lyrics. Mm-hmm. I have to be honest and say, no, it's just pure melody to me when uh-huh. I'm playing it. You're shaping. I'm just thinking about the shapes and, you know... It's just such beautiful harmonies, and um, it is. That's for sure. Yeah, and you know the, the idea of beausoir, beautiful evening. Um, just it just is communicated so easily because the music itself is so beautiful. When it comes to playing baroque music, is does everything change? Do you have to like to think about being a whole different kind of flutist if you're playing Baroque music? You know what? We it, Since I'm playing a modern flute, meaning it is not a Baroque, it is not a wooden flute, and it's in fact made out of gold, um, I play Baroque music like a modern flute would play Baroque music. So it we do not change the actual way. There are, you know, from playing years in a manual, at a, at a manual, I learned from Craig Smith, stylistic ways to play the trills and how to play certain things, and that stuck with me for years. So I think it informs my Baroque playing from, from years of playing with with great musicians who understand Bach. Is is listening when you're playing chamber music the most important thing, listening oh, to everybody absolutely. else? absolutely. There's nothing else. 
That's it. Yeah. So that's why it's so intimate is because well, you've exactly. never paid better attention to somebody than you do when you exactly. play with them. Right? Exactly. The beauty of chamber music is that no one is waving a stick in front of us and telling us how to interpret a piece. We're relying on ensemble and intonation and, um, you know, pieces of the puzzle fitting together by listening to each other. We have to know how the pieces fit together. So, um, and that's what makes it so much fun. And um, when, when, you know, you have to do a certain amount of homework so that when you arrive at the rehearsal, you know how those pieces fit together. The uh, Italian concerto, the, the slow movement, I think that's one of Bach's most beautiful it was really things. Pretty, it's a solo yeah. piano piece. You've yes. stolen this one too. Yeah. <laughs> well, you have to admit that when you listen to that slow movement and it's a single melody in the right hand, and chords in the left hand, it sounds as if it should be sung by a singing instrument. I'm sure that it seems like the most obvious thing in the world. And, you know, people who didn't know this, my audience members who don't happen to know the Italian concerto, said, I can't believe that piece wasn't written for for flute or oboe or some other singing instrument. It works so well. It didn't have to do a single thing to change that right hand of the piano. You just played the melody. Played exactly as is. It is yeah. one of his great spun out yeah. beautiful utterances throughout your life what has been the the biggest challenge for you oh my kathy you mean personal i guess Artistic? As, as, as a as a person achieving your your oh. goals well you know i i think it's very hard to be satisfied with what one is doing it's hard not to look around and say oh you know i wish i were you know, playing that Mahler symphony in, in Europe right now, whatever. There's so much beautiful music out there. I mean, that's just limiting to what we wish we were doing in music. If I were to make it a much bigger question, you know, we only have one short little life to do, to do everything we want to do. And, you know, we want to make it a combination of somehow giving back to the world, helping others, making the, uh, the world a better place. And sometimes... Um, you know, with everything going on around us. And it's hard to remember that that music and art still have its place and that we shouldn't feel that it's not enough. I mean, I wouldn't know what else to do right now to try to play my part better. I know I have found a little niche, and it's in, I guess, I, here's, here's a good quest, answer to that question, knowing that um, bringing art and beauty into people's lives, feeling that that is something and not something too small to be happy doing you know it in other words is it enough it feels so small to know that success is not dependent on numbers in the concert hall um, but the experience and the honesty of the experience that you provide to people the thing that um, touches me most about running the series myself is um, that Every little artistic detail I am in charge of. I am kind of crazy micromanager in that sense. <laughs> I, you know, I design these and I design my posters and I program booklets and I write the messages. And I'm sorry, I'm not trying to sound self-serving. I'm just trying to say that it, it means so much to me. It's like having somebody come over to dinner. I want to make sure the candles are perfect. I want to make sure that people are happy. They had a a really good experience. And the things that, that touch me the most are the notes and responses I get from people. And um, is it okay if I just read you one or two of these? I mean, I love my audience members so much. They, With all the administrative work that you have to do to run a series, um, the, the, the prize, of course, is when the music finally comes, the three days before any concert, and we finally get to play the music. It's like... I have to remember that that's coming because there are so many other things that I don't really love doing that are just a necessary way to get there. But um, I, I just love getting my, the notes from my audience members. One person wrote, It is nothing short of miraculous, one of the few inarguably wonderful things that humans have made and continue to make on this beleaguered earth. And Mistral does it like no one else. And that was so lovely to hear. And... Someone else says, it provides me with comfort and such a pleasant feeling that in this world, some communities still work at this level to make life more beautiful through art. 
that's what it's all about. And that makes, you know, it makes it all worth it. So that's, that's what keeps me going. And, and your imagination, I guess, never stops. Well, we are so grateful that you could stop and talk with us and, and, and that you're like a magnet for all these great artists. I mean, let it be said that the groups that come together to play with Mistral, the, the, the core group and also the guests, are, are the best of the best. Oh, I totally agree, but thank you for saying that. Thank yeah. you, Julie. Thank you, Kathy. And you'll hear Julie Skolnick and Mistral on WCRB in concert this Sunday at 7 p.m. on the radio at 99.5 FM and streaming at classicalwcrb.org. And check back on Monday to hear that broadcast on demand. Just last night, the Boston Symphony announced its plans for the 2017-2018 season. Among the many highlights are an opening night program devoted to music by Leonard Bernstein, followed later in the season by two major Bernstein symphonies to celebrate the 100th anniversary of Bernstein's birth. A continuation of the BSO's Shostakovich recording project, which now veers out of the under Stalin shadow set the orchestra will have recorded by the end of this season. And for the first time in the BSO's history, an artist-in-residence, pianist Jean-Yves Thibaudet. When I got together with the mastermind behind it all, BSO Artistic Administrator Tony Fogg, I asked him first to paint a picture of the relationship between Leonard Bernstein and the BSO. Well, Bernstein formally came into the orbit of the BSO in 1940 when he was in the first class of the Berkshire Music Centre at Tangwood, later, of course, the Tangwood Music Centre. But he was uh, a native boy of the area. He was born in Lawrence, Massachusetts, so the BSO would have been his hometown orchestra when he was growing up. And certainly early part of his training was at Harvard, uh, early successes was uh, included a competition which allowed him to conduct the Boston Pops on the Esplanade. So really, um, Boston is a sort of the artistic home of Leonard Bernstein in some ways. His actual centennial, uh, the centennial of his birth, is the 25th of August 2018, and there'll be a big concert at Tangoid on that date. And to be sure, the major involvement of Bernstein with the BSO and with the BSO organization, including Tanglewood, was at Tanglewood itself, where he was a presence every year. And we'll be doing a major celebration of Bernstein right throughout the 2018 Tanglewood season with something every weekend and major commissions and exhibits and so on. When thinking about how we might celebrate Bernstein here in Boston, uh, we took a sort of rather simple approach, I think simple but elegant, which was we thought we would feature the three works which Bernstein wrote specifically for the BSO. So that started with the Symphony Number no. 2 called The Age of Anxiety, and then later the Symphony Number no. 3, Kaddish, which was a 75th anniversary season, and then a brief and very charming piece called Divertimento, which he wrote for the orchestra's centennial. So we thought that would be a neat way of just highlighting the close relationship as a composer which Bernstein had with the orchestra. So they, those, those three pieces will be in the season. The Divertimento is the opening piece of an all-Bernstein program that we'll have um, for our opening night gala. And then the second and third symphonies will be in consecutive weeks in March and will be, as you mentioned, making those the centerpieces of some uh, discourse about Bernstein's work, some panel discussions, exhibits. So uh, they're, they're, they're pieces with very strong social messages and uh, we'll be taking a, a, that two-week block in March to use Bernstein's work as a passage into some of these issues and see how the works find their parallels in modern day society and some of the issues that we're all grappling with nowadays. And what you've done with those weeks is paired them with major symphonies uh, that that I, I thought when I first looked at this, this was really jumped out at me, that the Age of Anxiety is paired with Shostakovich 4 and Kaddish is paired with Tchaikovsky 6. The resonance between those pairings is so powerful. I, I kind of uh, suggest maybe we should have some counselors on hand outside the hall after the concert. <laughs> I mean, I mean, those are very powerful pairings. They are. They're, they're, they'll, there'll be two 
quite heavy weeks in terms of uh, the issues that they'll make our our listeners uh, con- consider. Um, but I think they work very well musically. Uh, Tchaikovsky and Shostakovich were, of course, composers who Bernstein championed enormously. And there are very there will be very interesting parallels between uh, the t- the two of them. The Age of Anxiety, of course, is in effect a piano concerto. It's a work for piano and orchestra. It was premiered with Bernstein playing the solo piano part and Kusevitsky conducting the orchestra. The recording of the premiere was one that we released on our Symphony Hall Centennial set in 2000. So there's a wonderful document of that first performance. But it, of course, includes some reflections of popular music of the time of its composition, some jazz, uh, a sort of aching nationalistic music. So uh, mm-hmm. I think all of those qualities in the musics um, of, of Tchaikovsky, Bernstein, Shostakovich will be very rich fodder for uh, some some great discourse. Well, okay, so then the the other, um, it's not, not one headline, but we can't talk about any given BSO season without talking about how Andres is involved. And he's got 12 subscription weeks that cover a, a really huge range of music. Um, after that uh, Bernstein opening night gala that, uh, that you described, there's also f- uh, three different Shostakovich symphonies that he'll be doing. And he's also doing a, a really fascinating uh, Wagner program that includes Act Two of Tristan and Isolde and lots of other things. So, so I guess I, I wonder from your perspective, um, without necessarily going into each individual program element, how, is, how do you and Andres work out exactly what programs um, the, the BSO will be doing with him on the podium? Is it a matter of him saying to you, well, I really want to do these pieces, or uh, does it involve some of you saying, you know, the orchestra hasn't done this for a while, would you do this? This is a question that I'm asked often, Brian, and I use the analogy that it's putting together a season is like putting together a jigsaw puzzle. You have a few key pieces spotted throughout, and very gradually the rest of the picture fills in. Unlike a jigsaw puzzle where you have the image on the side of the box which tells you what the final thing is going to be, <laughs> you don't quite know how a concert season is going to be, uh, how, how it would look in its final form. But we always start with a few uh, sort of givens. We talked about Shostakovich four, as we know we're embarked on this wonderful project to record all of the symphonies of Shostakovich by the end of this current season we will have completed the first installment which is the project we have titled under under Stalin's shadow which were the symphonies uh, numbers five through ten which were written during the period during which Shostakovich was deeply under the surveillance of Stalin and the government of the time so we're starting to move away from that period now and uh, so the next installment will be uh, we don't keep in any particular sequence but we'll be doing next season numbers 4 11 and 14 which uh, obviously come from early and later periods in Shostakovich's creative career and they are very very different pieces number 4 is wild and experimental and written for a huge orchestra. Number 11, which is, has the, the title The Year 1905, is a work still reflecting a strong nationalistic sentiment. Uh, number 14 is an orchestral song cycle for two singers in all but name, uh, settings of poems by various authors, all related somehow or other to the subject of death. Uh, a most wonderful piece uh, for soprano, bass baritone, and string orchestra with percussion. One of my favorite works by Shostakovich without any qualification. So we then plug in some of the other major projects that Andres has expressed interest in doing. So you you reference a Wagner program, and we're doing Act Two of uh, Tristan and Isolde with uh, two wonderful 
leads in the title roles, Camilla Nylund and uh, the great tenor Jonas Kaufmann. And so we obviously needed to find a spot where that could go. We wanted to take it to Carnegie Hall with us, so it had to be in some proximate week near the dates that we were able to secure for Carnegie Hall. So little by little, this picture falls into place. And uh, I can sometimes be surprised how our season has evolved. Sometimes early on, there might be a theme that emerges. Uh, the season that we're currently wrapping up, for instance, uh, the piano became one of the principal themes. We found that we had this embarrassment of riches of pianists and so we developed a little further and so we uh, during the 1617 have this tremendous array of pianistic talent um, there's not an overarching theme that runs through 1718 in the same way but there are lots of very rich and very strong focuses which appear right throughout the right throughout the, the, the calendar well I'm glad you brought up piano because one of the things that you've done with the 1718 season is you've brought on for the first time, in BSO history, an artist in residence, Jean-Yves Thibaudet, who I, I don't know that there's anyone who doesn't love his playing because it's it's tremendous. Just such a, a, a musician with flair and style, but a lot of soul. And my observation of him around the hall when he's been around uh, is that people love to work with him. He's just a lot of fun. But tell me what it was about right now that made it the right time for an artist in residence position, and, and especially for, for Jean-Yves Thibaudet to be that person? This is, uh, having an artist in residence is something we've been thinking about for a little while. Um, as we gradually develop the musical family of the BSO, as we know, we had the great fortune to have uh, a relationship with Thomas Addis, and this was one that developed very organically. Um, this current season is Tom's first season as artistic partner. And in that capacity, he'll conduct the orchestra, uh, perform as a pianist. He's writing a major commission for us, a piano concerto that we'll do in the 1819 season. But this really came about through a very, very fertile relationship that started when Tom came here first as a guest conductor. There was a tremendous chemistry between him and the BSO, which continued, and it got to the point where we thought, listen, how do we formalize this in some way? And so we threw around lots of different possible titles, you know, uh, composer in residence, uh, artist in residence, artistic partner. You know, anyway, uh, artistic partner ended up being the right thing because it seemed to summarize all of the incredible talents that he had. Um, and out there was still this idea of should we have an artist in residence as some other orchestras do? And as our plans developed, we realized that there were a few programs for which the ideal person was Jean-Yves. And um, so we just, frankly, we couldn't resist. Um, <laughs> so uh, Jean-Yves is coming to play the Ravel Concerto for the Left Hand with Charles Dutois, which is part of a very special program marking the 90th anniversary of Ravel's tour of the United States as a conductor in 1928. And he came here and did uh, a mostly Ravel program. Uh, I say mostly because it included his own orchestration of the Debussy um, Sarabande and Dance. And so uh, we've included that in the program, and we wanted to uh, have the left-hand concerto. So who else was Jean-Yves? And then we were thinking about a soloist for the Age of Anxiety, and Jean-Yves plays that as well as anyone alive today. Uh, so we thought, well, look, let's really just expand on this. And one of the other very neat uh, projects that we're doing um, is part of the uh, Leipzig week in Boston that I referenced earlier, and that's a performance of Bach's Concerto in D minor for three keyboards and orchestra. And the idea for this was to replicate some historic performances that took place in Leipzig itself back in the 1830s with some famous pianistic figures of the time. Uh, there was a performance in 
1840 with Mendelssohn and Liszt as two of the soloists, uh, joined by the pianist uh, Ferdinand Hiller. Um, there was an earlier performance with uh, Mendelssohn, Liszt, and none other than Clara Schumann. So we thought in the spirit of combining virtuoso pianists uh, with virtuoso composer pianists, we've put together a trio which is Jean-Yves, uh, Tom Addis, uh, a great pianist as well as a great conductor, and Kirill Gerstein, uh, a virtuoso. So it's something of the spirit of those uh, 19th century uh, performances in Leipzig and will give, uh, I think, a taste of a different type of historic performance practice. So there we have Jean-Yves in three different subscription programs. We invited him to also come and play with the Boston Symphony Chamber Players in Jordan Hall where he'll be doing Forja Quintet. So, uh, and this is all in the second half of the season. So, um, as you rightly say, uh, everyone just seems happy when Jean-Yves around and I'm I'm finding this a completely selfish personal pleasure that he'll be <laughs> he'll be here for 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 so much of next season. I've I've known Johnny for many many years now since I think we worked out we'd met first in 1990. And uh, as an aside, I can say I have never heard him say a, a, a bad word about any colleague. He's one of the most generous artists and uh, a joy to have around in every in every sense and he certainly raises the uh, the standard of concert dress to a, a new level too <laughs> yeah, that's right he does i talked with him a little bit about that He's, <laughs> i love that he does that um but is this a is this a um a relationship in this formalized titled role that is for a certain length of time and does that mean that it's, we can expect more from uh, it's it's a one season and, okay, okay. And i think uh, we'll have to think whether we want to continue this. Um, it certainly it gives us a focus to some of our programs, and uh, we hope that audiences will enjoy the chance to see the many dimensions of the artistry of Jean-Yves in the course of uh, several months, uh, as they are seeing the many dimensions of, of Tom's work as a, as a conductor and pianist and composer. Yeah, yeah. Well, so there are certain conductors who are going to play a, a big role outside of those formalized uh, uh, relationships. Um, speaking of which is uh, Charles Dutois. He is always one of the great presences in uh, any BSO season. And he's doing the Berlioz Damnation of Faust, which is a spectacular piece because uh, Berlioz tended to just write that way. But I wonder if you can just speak to what what the importance of the Faust story is to music in general and, and why that piece is so important in, in, the, in the work of Berlioz? Well, it's, uh, you know, um, Jean Martinot, the, uh, the great French conductor, said if you take a set of musical scales and you put the damnation of Faust of Berlioz on one side and the rest of Berlioz's output on the other, the Damnation of Faust is still probably be the heavier. <laughs> wow, okay. I love that. Uh, it's a wonderful analogy. Yeah. But um, it's really the summation of all of Berlioz's um, thinking and creative power. It was, you know, he was, of course, always the most literary of composers, uh, deeply inspired by very different and wide-ranging literary sources. He was a great writer himself, um, uh, but as you rightly suggest, the Damnation of Faust is one of the pieces that has inspired many, many composers to come up with some of their greatest creations. When you think of Gounod or Robert Schumann or whatever, um, dealing with the Faustian legend in some way or other has, you know, is a sort of tantalizing prospect for composers. But it brought out all of the most wonderful qualities in Berlioz's writing. So you have, um, you know, an angle, a, a, a take on the Faust story, but you have all of the fantasy as well. And so this manifests in a work of very original architecture, uh, astonishing orchestration through wonderful combinations of uh, solo voices and orchestra, chorus and orchestra, children's chorus. You know, it's every sort of conceivable uh, combination. So 
it's an absolutely marvelous piece and uh, one I'm glad to say we've done with some reasonable regularity uh, unlike many other orchestras in the states at least uh, there's a great tradition of how it's performed here the BSO goes into some certain mode or zone I it's hard to describe when it plays the damnation of Faust uh, Charles Dutois is always fascinating because he he regards himself as sort of carrying the, the torch for certain traditions in French music and is a fierce advocate for those. He comes and he reminds everyone about certain basic principles uh, in the approach to French repertoire. And it's sort of like someone coming and scraping the barnacles off the bottom of a of a boat. He gets back to what the real essence of something is. So it's wonderful that he wants to do uh, come and, and, and present the damnation with us as he's done other big Berlioz pieces, and there will be more in the future as well. And there's no BSO season that doesn't include a pretty healthy amount of new music as well, or at least music of our time. So for this coming season, um, two uh, premieres, uh, one of them a world premiere, the other American premiere, both connected to that uh, Leipzig Alliance, I believe, the, the Sean Shepard uh, new piece uh, is a world premiere, and Jörg Widmann, a piece that will have its American premiere, I presume, after being world premiered in Leipzig. Um, so those are those are going on, which were, it's it's always invigorating, at the very least, and often revelatory when there's a new piece. I think this season has proven that as well. There's been some amazing world premieres uh, during this season. Then we get into some other pieces that aren't world premieres, they're not American premieres, they're just new, they're music of our time. Arlene Sierra, a piece by her, Derek Burmel, Tom Addis when he he is here on his own, um, and then a John Adams piece uh, with Leila Yosefowicz. I, I guess my, now that I've given that laundry list, I'm curious about your way of integrating new music into programs, again, getting back to the puzzle pieces. Um, I, su- I suppose some conductors come with a, a request to include a particular piece or or uh, a preference for certain composers. But I wonder from your perspective, how 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 is your radar and how much are you trying to really inject um, your own particular ideas with new music into a given season? Well, it, it happens in a number of ways. Um, you mentioned the John Adams work, uh, Scheherazade II, which is a large-scale work for violin and orchestra. It was written for... Leila Josefowitz, who's an astonishing violinist. She's played a few times with us over the years, most re- recently in Essa Pekka Salonen's Concerto. But this was a work that she premiered with the New York Philharmonic and with Alan Gilbert. And we had invited Alan. We'd been trying to get him back with us for a number of seasons, but he's a pretty busy guy. But we did find this week and Alan said look is there anything you would particularly like to do and I think that this particular work of John Adams Scheherazade II is an astonishing piece and I said look would you know would this be of interest because it's a big chunk of programming time for a conductor to undertake a piece like this it, it runs over 40 minutes I believe and it's like a symphony in all but name with a big violin part so Alan very generously said he would love to do it, and it forms the second half of the program. So that was a good starting point. And then otherwise, uh, you know, we obviously want to try and have some cross-section of styles of contemporary music throughout any season, um, a mixture of generations, of stylistic pro- pro- different approaches. So... Again, once you sort of lay out, once you have the bare bones there, there there are spots in which you think, okay, well, look, a fine American piece would work very well in this particular program. And then you have to look and see what you already have. And if it's a program that is overwhelmingly romantic in style, um, one may need an American piece or a new piece with a little bit more edge to it. So, for instance, we have a program fairly early in the season, which is one of the programs we're uh, taking elements of to uh, to Japan, in- included the Tchaikovsky Violin Concerto with Gil Shaham and the Rachmaninoff Second Symphony, both very, very lush romantic pieces. So one sort of needs a, a piece that will offset those a little bit. So um, 
we did a little bit of research, came up with a half a dozen different options for Andres to listen to of American composers of slightly younger generation uh, because we thought he would be interested in those and he listened to all of them and selected this work by Arlene Sierra who uh, was a Tangled Fellow a number of years ago, a wonderful composer and I was thrilled that we could include her music in the program. It's a piece called Mola, which is a slightly edgy work but uh, I think very exciting for the orchestra. And then at another spot, we had a program with the, uh, the Alpine Symphony of Strauss. And so we were looking for something that wouldn't compete with that. You need something that's going to be a nice sort of counterbalance. So again, we, we gave a selection of possibilities to, to Andres, and he chose a very, very beautiful piece by Derek Burmel, whose music I don't believe has been featured in the Boston Symphony Concert here in Symphony Hall before, called Elixir, which is, an, in a little way, you know, the, the, the Alpine Symphony is like a morning to dusk uh, idea, and Derek's piece is a little the same. It's sort of like some trip through a exotic rainforest. Um, so it's like a mini version of the Alpine Symphony. So that seemed a very good uh, counterbalance to, uh, to, to the the grandeur of the Alpine Symphony. So it's a matter of each season looking at what we've got and what the good, the right sort of balance uh, in terms of new music for each of those will be. Uh, you referenced Jörg Widman. We, of course, had a wonderful piece uh, by Jörg Widman earlier this season, the Trauermarsch for, uh, for piano and orchestra, and I think that was very, very well received by everyone, and I hope that has piqued the curiosity in hearing more music by this very important figure. Sean Shepard uh, was likewise uh, one of our composition fellows at Tanglewood a number of years ago and has developed a tremendous career. His music's played uh, all around the place. So we're thrilled that we'll be uh, hearing this new work, which will be premiered here by Andresen Symphony Hall and then taken to the Gewandhaus in Leipzig a few months later. There's also um, something that picks up on, on the, uh, the work that you've, you did with Midsummer Night's Dream in that uh, semi-staged way. And, and this, so this is a complete peregrine along with um, uh, the incidental music for Egmont. And this is, uh, I like this idea, how um, building semi-theatrical productions around some of these pieces that we always know, well, this was associated with the theater, but we don't really hear it that way or see it that way because theaters don't really do that in the same way anymore. So this is really exciting that, that you're, you're, you're teaming up with this, uh, this group of people again to, to bring a, a theatrical sensibility to Symphony Hall. We, uh, we have as our wonderful um, assistant conductor, soon to be associate conductor, uh, Ken David Mazur. And uh, Ken had a week uh, that he would be conducting next season, a subscription week. And, and we hadn't yet talked about the program and he just happened to say something about how as a young boy soprano who he sang in the chorus of his father's recording of Grieg's incidental music to Per Gint. And I just, all of a sudden, at that moment, I thought, ha ha. <laughs> Do we have an idea here? <laughs> and Per Gint was a piece that his father, um, Kurt Mazur, loved to conduct. And in fact, he did a version of it uh, with actors uh, here back in the 1980s uh, among his first uh, concerts with the BSO, in fact, and it was a piece that he did in many places around the world. So I suggested to Ken that would this be a, a good idea to try and do our version of Per Gunt. Not a lot of people know that this was music written for this play by Ibsen, that was a monstrous undertaking. It ran in totality with the play and music around four and a half hours. And the play itself is wild and sprawling and full of the most incomprehensible shifts of location and situation and so on. So we thought, wouldn't it be great if we can somehow create a version which gives a context to this music that we all know and love so well and represent something of the play. So as you mentioned, we last season um, 
were delighted to work with Bill Barclay, who's a very talented Boston, originally Boston area uh, theater director, composer, conductor, actor. He's a multi-talented, one of those multi-talented people that scares me. <laughs> um, but Bill had put together a wonderful version of A Midsummer Night's Dream that we did in the hall last season with actors and uh, some visual presentations. So we said to Bill, how about we try and do a, a similar sort of thing with Grieg's Pergunt? And so we're working on this at the moment, and it will be with the, the design team that we worked with before with some actors. Um, the challenge in this instance is to somehow be able to make sense of this sprawling play and bring it in combination with the music down to a, a manageable 50, 55 minutes. Yeah. <laughs> and there are some really very, very exciting ideas which have been talked about already. So uh, thinking about what we might pair this with, and Ken and I tossed around a lot of ideas. Um, the Grieg includes a soprano solo who sings uh, the song, takes the role of Solveig and has a wonderful song. And that made me think about other incidental music that also included a soprano and of course Beethoven's Egmont uh, includes a couple of wonderful vocal numbers for soprano so we thought if we've got the wonderful Camilla Tilling on hand why not do um, a big slab of uh, Beethoven's Egmont which is very very different in musical style. Um, it will be done purely as a musical work with some connecting dialogue but as a straight concert piece. So I think we, I hope it adds up to a very interesting program when we hear Beethoven and Grieg both uh, writing music for the theatre, uh, very different approach to that, very different theatrical works. Um, and we hope it'll be, you know, a, a concert experience that our subscribers will greatly enjoy. Well, I mean, it, it, it really did jump out at me from the, the t looking at the totality of the schedule, just the um, ingeniousness of, of pairing those two things because it, it gives it, it's a coherent evening of theater and music. And, um, and the way that Bill was able to, to pull off a, a way of taking Mendelssohn's music and making that a production without the beginning part of the play um, and sort of drilling a little bit into Mendelssohn himself. It was just really ingenious, so I, I, I was thrilled to see that. Um, there are more and more highlights to talk through. I mean, there are so many things that we could keep going on about. Uh, Bernard Heitink will be back, as will Christoph und Dachnanyi. Um, I'm thrilled that Herbert Blumstedt will be back uh, celebrating his 90th birthday and uh, leading an all-Mozart program. The orchestra is going to Japan, and we're also... Uh, going to hear more from James Burton now as he'll come on board with as BSO choral director. So lots of great things. Um, is there anything in particular I've left out that you, you find particularly exciting? Well, I'm, I'm always uh, thrilled about artists who are coming to us for the first time. Yes, um, yes. We have a, a wonderful conductor who um, was scheduled a couple of seasons ago and then uh, sadly had to cancel at the last moment, and that's Turgan Sokiev, who yes. was one of the leading... Uh, conductors of his generation. He'd be in his late 30s. He's roughly a contemporary of of Andras and likewise was uh, trained under the Soviet system and really a very, very interesting figure. So I'm delighted that we've found a, a two-week block where he can, he can uh, join us. I'm also very pleased that we have um, a very fine young pianist, two very fine young pianists, I should say, coming for the first time. Benjamin Grosvenor, English pianist who, oh yes, right, uh, who uh, has played in the Boston area a couple of times before. Really wonderful talent, and Jan Leszczewski, who is a Polish-Canadian pianist, uh, something of a Chopin expert, um, a beautiful, refined player. So I'm I'm delighted that we have those two new uh, pianists as part of our our roster. Um, so it's uh, it's always it's always great to hear new, wonderful new talent for the BSO's season, as well as some of those artists that we know and love for all the right reasons. Right. Well, just to wrap up, um, taking a step back from the specifics of this season um, and thinking about the, the trajectory the orchestra has been on for the last few years, especially since Andres got here, um, Andres has imprinted 
you know, his presence on, on this orchestra through major projects like the Shostakovich recordings and some other things that he's done. But how do you see um, Andres's effect on the orchestra in a more organic way? How, how is the orchestra, um, it, it still sounds as great as the BSO ever has, um, but is there anything in particular about Andres's work that is, that is bringing certain aspects of the orchestra to a more prominent sort of role in how the orchestra sounds and even how it operates? I think the orchestra is in wonderful spirits at the moment. Um, it was a period of uncertainty after James Levine's unfortunate early retirement from the orchestra. And gradually, I think all of that has, has calmed. Um, the players love working with Andres uh, for many reasons. Uh, he's a, a com- conductor who somehow, as, and I've used this expression before, sort of releases the expressive potential of our musicians. Um, just somehow he's a uh, positive quality and the way he draws the sound out is uh, gives a new range of colours and power and expressive possibility for them. And that certainly carries over to the concerts by all of the guest conductors. And without fail, the guest conductors come here and you know say, look, what wonderful spirit the orchestra is in and what tremendous shape and how even it is right throughout the ranks. So I think that's all a, a, a testimony to Andres's great work. Um, and, of course, we know he's so generous with um, his time. He spends a lot of time in community, making himself available to uh, the press and the media. So he's a very open figure and an open face for the, the BSO, and I think that's... Uh, that's exactly what we need, and we're, we're thrilled and so lucky to have him. Well, Tony Fogg, thank you for talking through all of this with me. It's, a, as, as always, a, a thrilling season that's ahead. And like I said when we started, it's hard to pull out even a headline. There is so much going on, but, um, but thank, you for, thank you for going over all of it with me. My pleasure. You can see a summary of the highlights of the 2017-2018 season of the Boston Symphony at our website, classicalwcrb.org. And you can subscribe to The Answered Question at iTunes or through your favorite podcast app. You'll also find TAQ at WCRB's Facebook, Twitter, and SoundCloud pages. Thank you to Alain Altinoglu, Julie Skolnick, and Tony Fogg for being our guests on this podcast. And thanks also to my colleagues, Kathy Fuller and Alan McClellan. I'm Brian McCreeth. Thanks for listening.